Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. I go to the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible, uh, would you open it up to the book of Matthew? If you don't have one, we'll put the scriptures up on the screen for you this morning. So you get comfy foot rest in the front row. See, it's not so bad. And you get a good view. You know what I'm saying? I mean, these legs, you don't cover these legs up. Do you light a lamp and put a bowl over it? You don't. I don't know what that means. All right. Are we doing okay, 11 o'clock? You guys all right? All right, there's a whole bunch of you, so let's go to Matthew together. Now, Jesus, and this is going to come as a shock. Jesus was Jewish. Okay? Most of us are not Jewish. So the temptation always when Americans read the Bible is to Americanize Jesus. The, the, one of the things you've got to do, so, so there are four biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now there were lots of other ones written, but these are the authoritative ones. Matthew is Jewish, writing to a Jewish audience, and his agenda, as we've said if you've been around here, is to show that this Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, Messiah is Savior, it's Rescuer, it's Deliverer. Christ is another way to say Messiah. Because throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, all of these promises were made by God to His covenant people Israel. That God was going to bring a Messiah and a Rescuer who would begin the process of putting everything back together the way God had intended. Matthew's agenda is very, very clear. Through a a, a historical Jesus to show that this Jesus, this Jesus was the one that was promised. And so very often in Matthew, he's pulling from the Hebrew Scriptures saying, see how this fulfills and you see how this fulfills and you see this foreshadowing. Now, I have, I have dear, dear Jewish friends who disagree with that and say, well, the Messiah was supposed to do this and didn't do this. And, and we have all sorts of fascinating conversations. The surprise about this Jesus is that the Messiah was thought to come in great glory and power. In fact, I have a, an Orthodox Jewish friend who said the reason he doesn't believe Jesus is Messiah is because the Messiah was supposed to go to the great people of Israel. And Jesus went to the poor and the outcasts and the disadvantaged. He went to the diseased. He went to the sinners. And so the, the Matthew is, is, is very concerned to show us that this Jesus is the promised one, but he's coming in a way that's a bit surprising. Everybody thought the Messiah would come and deal with Rome, the folks that occupied Israel in the first century. And this Jesus, he's doing Messiah kind of stuff. He's healing sick people. And, and, and he's casting out demonic spirits and doing all this stuff. And yet, he's breaking all sorts of social customs and boundaries. Right? We looked, if you were here with us uh, last week, so there's a leper. You don't touch lepers in the first century. Jesus touches a leper to heal him. There's an unclean woman who's been defiled with a bleeding issue, and, and she touches Jesus. And instead of Jesus being polluted, his cleanliness overrides exactly his cleanliness. I'm so with you. Um, <laughs> His cleanliness overrides her impurity. I mean, it's just this epic story, but it's a surprise. Because when Jesus, all these crowds are coming and flocking to him, Jesus begins to clarify the nature of his Messiahship. And it begins to thin the crowds a little bit. He begins to talk about suffering and dying, and that just didn't fit 
with the first century expectations of what Messiah was going to do. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three separate passages that are categorized under the hard teachings of Jesus. They're the, the, the teachings of Jesus that are warm and fuzzy. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm in for that one. Right? God is the giver of good gifts. Love good gifts, God. Right? I mean, those are the easy ones. These, these three are a bit harder for us to hear. So we've got to put some Jewish ears on to hear what Jesus is doing. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is about ready. He's been teaching and healing on one side of the Sea of Galilee. He's now going over to the other side. Verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law, a religious expert, a theologian, said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Now that sounds like a pretty good opportunity, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I'm a Messiah and I'm building a movement, I'm thinking, sweet, I got, like an author- I, got, I got a theologian wanting to follow me. Jesus replies with the ever warm, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Hmm. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus replies with the very very warm and fuzzy. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, we hear this in English and go, okay, I like the warm, fuzzy Jesus better. What exactly is he up to? The crowds are coming. The crowds have a false idea about what Messiah is going to be like. Jesus knows exactly where he is headed. And so he begins to start sifting a little bit those that would want to follow him. And this teacher of the law comes and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, the journey I'm on isn't a journey of glory. It's a journey of rejection. It's a journey of suffering. It's a journey of humiliation. In fact, foxes and birds will enjoy better hospitality than I will on the journey. In other words, he looks at this this religious expert, and he says, are you sure you know what you're signing up for? The Son of Man was a very Jewish way of talking about Messiah, and he just says, not only will I be itinerant, meaning I'm not going to be based in one place, but my journey is a journey of betrayal and suffering and rejection. You sure you're in for that? The other guy comes and he says, well, let me go bury my father first. Now, And that sounds in English like... I got a funeral today, right? I can, can you hold off just a second? I mean, I got to go bury my dad. Now, you need some background on this one. But even then, it doesn't take this sting away. This was highly offensive in the Jewish culture of the day. Uh, central to Jewish life is love of family. Honor your mother and father, right? Central. And central to honoring your mother and father in that culture was burying them in the prescribed manner. In fact, burial was so important that you were exempted from religious practices that you would have to do normally. So you would have to recite something called the Shema, the central declaration of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. was the beginning of it. You'd have to recite that several times a day, but on the day you buried one of your parents, you didn't have to say it. Normally, if you were a man, you had to wear a a shawl or a robe that had tassels on the end of it. On that day that you buried your family, you didn't have to. You were exempted from all this normal stuff. The Jewish burial process, and this is where we can get some understanding. 
The Jewish burial process, though, was about a year long. Because what you'd do is you'd take the body and you would stick it in a cave, a tomb, and you'd let it decompose for a year. And then about a year later, you would collect the bones, just the bones, and put it in a bone box, an ossuary. And then you would stick the bone box with a bunch of others from your ancestors. So we think what's going on here is the guy saying, I'm in that year process. I've got to go bury my father, right? He's dead, but I've got to wait to finish that second part. And Jesus says, well, if he's laying with the corpses, let the corpses take care of him. Now you have to know how offensive this would have felt. And it feels totally appropriate for Baby Dedication Sunday, doesn't it? (laughs) What Jesus is saying, though, and this got him in some hot water, your allegiance to your family is superseded by your allegiance to me. If you're going to follow me, family obligations are secondary. Now, the New Testament all over the place teaches about family obligations. But if family obligations were going to hinder your following Jesus, then they're relegated to second place. Now, just when you think we've handled the hard teaching of Jesus, he makes it worse. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is equipping his 12 closest followers. They're called the disciples. Disciple just means student, apprentice, learner. Jesus wasn't looking around for people to memorize a bunch of creeds about him. (laughs) Jesus was actually looking for people who would follow him and become like him and do the things that he was doing. Now, Obviously, we can't do that by ourselves. And so in the New Testament, God's Spirit now comes and equips us under grace to live the kind of life we couldn't live by ourselves. But Jesus, quite honestly, wasn't looking for just simple believers. I believe in Jesus. He was looking for people to come after him, to follow him. And he starts equipping his 12 closest disciples to go out into the world and to carry on his mission for a time. And he tells them, you're going to get persecuted. Just so we're clear, this isn't a message that unifies, right? Some people are going to buy it. Some people aren't going to buy it. And households will be divided over this. And then he says, verse 37, Matthew chapter 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Right? He's just, he's made it a lot warmer and fuzzier just by saying that. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, holy moly. Jesus, what are you doing? He's saying the same thing again. In a society where you didn't have a social security number, You didn't have a driver's license. Your primary identity was your family. There were going to be people who were wanted to follow him, but would have to face the risk of rejection of their family. And do you know, obviously, that happens today. Particularly people, I mean, I I met a a gal who had uh, decided to follow Jesus out of Islam. How'd that go over? Not so much. Or Mormonism. How'd that go over? Like, and what Jesus is simply saying is, listen, of course love and honor your family. But if you're ever forced to choose, pray it never happens, but if you're ever forced to choose, 
Your obligation to me supersedes your obligation to other people. And your identity in me is more important than your biological identity. He does that in another place where he says, who are my brothers and mothers and sisters? And he points at his disciples and he said, this is my family. Just highly offensive. But Jesus is clarifying. See, there is a whole bunch of people who are now wanting to follow him because he's the... He's going to do like the cool Messiah thing, right? He's going to do all the miracles. He's going to take care of us, and it's going to be awesome. And Jesus just keeps going, you guys don't understand exactly how this is going to go down. He's aiming at people who want to follow him casually. And he's simply saying, you cannot have another allegiance besides me to follow me. And I know this is just totally shocking, but the only way you're disqualified from following Jesus is if you don't want to follow Jesus. If you want to follow yourself and sprinkle a little Jesus in, not going to work. If you've got an agenda and you just want Jesus to kind of baptize it, not going to work. Jesus was radical in his grace. Radical with the invitation. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how big a screw-up you are. He never disqualified anybody for a past or for failure. In fact, his disciples, were these guys a bunch of spiritual heavyweights? These guys were horrible. And it gives me so much hope, right? Peter denies Jesus three times. I mean, outright denies him. And Jesus comes after him. So Jesus isn't looking for perfection. He's looking, though, for single-mindedness. Because we, I, am the kind of person that wants it both ways. Right? I want what I want, and I want my Jesus too. Or am I the only one? (laughs) And so Jesus is going, it doesn't work like that, you guys. And then he says, take up your cross. Now, I'm a fan of church. I work for a church. I help lead churches. But we are idiotic in some ways. One of the ways we're idiots in America is that we've turned that into a marketing device. Right? So if we, you can take a pen and put a cross on it, and now we can sell it in a Christian bookstore. Right? You got jewelry. I mean, imagine if a bunch of us started wearing around our next little guillotines. Or you came in, and and we had like a table for lethal injections up here. Would you think we were a little odd? So we just parade around with this execution symbol and think, ah, isn't it cute? I mean, if somebody came from another planet and looked at us, they'd go, really? This, for hundreds of years, was a symbol of humiliation, subjugation, oppression, injustice, torture. So when Jesus' listeners heard, hey, take up your cross and follow me, they didn't hear like, oh, you have a cross to bear, like arthritis or something. The only people, like have you, haven't you ever heard that? Like it's my cross to bear, baldness. <laughs> First of all, that's not a cross, that is glory. And secondly, <laughs> this wasn't a metaphor for Jesus' first listeners. Would you agree? Because what they would see is that any time anybody raised enough ruckus to attract the attention of Rome, 
Rome would torture them and and humiliate them to death on that. And so to carry your cross literally meant to take that cross beam and to carry it up to the place of your execution. Anybody who carried their cross was dead to the world. And Jesus uses that as a picture of what it means to follow him. I like the warm, fuzzy Jesus better. Go to Matthew 16. So the disciples, spiritual heavyweights? No. Jesus looks at him at one point and says, Why are you still so dull? So if anyone dull here, you're in good company. Right? He looks at them and says, why do you guys have such little faith? Anyone have little faith here? You're in good company. I mean, these folks were clueless. And Peter was the mouthiest, brashest, most impulsive dude that in Jesus' entourage. Peter was the guy that always spoke first and then thought later. Peter was the guy that got into all kinds of trouble. But in the middle of the book of Matthew, the whole book pivots on this moment. Peter gets it right. Because Jesus says, okay, well, who do the crowd say I am? Because the central point of Matthew is to show Jesus as Messiah. Who do the crowd say? Oh, he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He's a prophet like Jeremiah. Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you guys think? And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Whoa! I mean, the whole book's been building to this point. And then Jesus, making perfect sense, says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> and, and, and I, really? Isn't that like, people were supposed to be finding this out, right? Why wouldn't you tell anybody? And Jesus then begins to clarify what Messiah meant. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus didn't let the disciples tell anybody because they, although they got the right answer, they missed the concept completely. Jesus was going to be glorified, but his glory would come through suffering. Jesus was going to be victorious over Rome, but it would be at the hands of his death at the Romans. I mean, you just go, so it just didn't make any sense. I mean, there's no way we can fully appreciate these Jewish men sitting there realizing this is the plan of the Messiah, to suffer, be tortured, and die. So Peter, the dude who got the right answer, all cocky, begins to rebuke Jesus. It is never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Can we agree? Peter took, a, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you because crucified messiahs aren't messiahs, they're pretenders. Jesus turned to Peter and very warmly said, get behind me, Satan. Now, you may be here thinking, I've screwed up big in my life, right? Jesus could never use somebody like me. Well, he used the dude that he called Satan. So you're, you, he can use you. Because he literally, this phrase, get behind me, Satan, is the same phrase he uses to Satan himself when he's tempted earlier in the book. When, when Satan tempts him to not go the way of suffering, but just go the way of glory, he says, get behind me. Depart from me. Go. He says the same thing to Peter, because Peter was suggesting the same idea. 
Messiah shouldn't suffer. Although Isaiah 53 and all sorts of passages in the Hebrew Scriptures pointed to a Messiah that would suffer, there were some who actually taught there were two Messiahs, one that was conquering and one that was suffering. Jesus taught, nope, there's one, and he conquers through suffering. Nobody was ready for that one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, because if you want to save your life, you must lose it. Now, think about how epic this moment is. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, yep, and you don't have any idea what that means. So don't tell anybody yet until you figure it out, because I have to go suffer and die. Peter says, no way, dude, that's not Messiah. Jesus says, get behind me. And then he says, not only am I going to take up my cross, you are going to take yours up too. So the crowds at this point begin to thin out a little bit. <laughs> right? The thing about Jesus is that he was never hurting for followers. He's entering into Jerusalem later on in the story, and his disciples are making a ruckus. That's twice I've used that word. I love it. Ruckus. It's underused. Would you agree? Forget it. Okay, back, back, focus. And Jesus is coming in. His disciples are very loud. And the religious leaders say, shut those guys up. And Jesus says, I would, except the rocks would start singing if I did. Jesus isn't somebody that was ever hurting for followers. He wasn't ever begging or bribing people to come follow him. You have to understand that when Jesus says things like this. He doesn't just say them in a vacuum. This is after chapters and, and months and days of him being brilliant and compelling and healing and epically gracious. I mean, and then he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to want to follow me. You can't have a bunch of competing allegiances. You can only have one master. You have to pick who that master is. And so he invites people to come. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, how big a screw-up you are. He never turns anybody away for having a past or, or blowing it. But for people who only wanted just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on, for people that didn't really, they just wanted the glorious parts, he just said, you know, this isn't going to work for you. And this idea of surrendering our agenda for Jesus. Because here's the deal, guys. Jesus isn't interested in adding a little bit to your life. Jesus isn't interested in self-help. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not a cosmic life coach. Jesus isn't up there going, hey, it looks like you just need a little tweaks and then you'll be a really good person. Jesus looks to destroy whatever foundation you've built your life on in order to erect a new foundation himself, out of which will come a flourishing human life. He's not interested in tweaking the thing. He's interested in transplanting hearts. He's interested in giving you a new nature. He's interested in literally forming you into a new creation. But to do that, you got to kill the old one. Paul says, we have parts of us that are crucified and a new part that's resurrected. What Jesus did, Jesus still does. And for those of us that are just in for a little bit of religion, a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on my agenda, he just says, this just won't work. 
I'm not hurting for followers, guys. It's your loss. It's not like I'm lucky to have you. It's quite the reverse. And that is why all of the sinners of, in the first century were totally compelled by him. Because all the people that had made a train wreck out of their lives didn't need anyone to tell them, hey, you can't run your life better than I can. Right? So when Jesus comes and he says, let me take your life and put it under new management, they were like, yes, thank you. I can't do it. But the religious folks, the folks that thought they were doing just fine, the folks that just thought, yeah, you know, I'm a great person compared to the rest of the scum, those were the folks that missed him. Because they thought, I just need a couple of tweaks. So what Jesus is doing is he's clarifying the only folks that follow Jesus are the ones that want to follow Jesus and not themselves and not their families. And if you're not willing to face ridicule or opposition or persecution or rejection, this isn't going to work. Because following him means following a crucified Messiah. I mean, think about it. What are the three inalienable rights of Americans? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, can I tell you how absolutely thrilled I am to live in America? I am. I am so glad that that, that founding do- set of documents reflects in so many ways the freedoms God intends people to have. But what we've done over 200 years has turned those things into something that's antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. Think about this. The right to life means the right to defend myself, the right to have my life unencumbered and protected. And here's a Jesus who sacrifices his life in service to others. Here's a Jesus who says, bless your enemies. Here's a Jesus that invites people to be martyred just as he was. Here's a Jesus that says when people persecute you, do good to them. When people do evil to you, and I don't mean cutting you off in traffic, although that would be a good start. I mean, this is one of the most neglected teachings in the American church. Return evil with good. How hard is that? That's brutal. We live in a culture that says, cling to your life. Claim your rights. And we follow a Jesus that says, abandoning your rights is the way to find true life. Now, I believe that in my head, but I don't believe it really. Because I got all kinds of rights. If they're violated, I'm kind of frustrated. Right? Or what about liberty? Liberty. Liberty is self-governance. Liberty is the right, I get to say who governs me. And what we've turned that into is nobody gets to govern me but me. And yet, here's what Paul says. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your bodies. One of the metaphors that's most common used to describe discipleship to Jesus is slave. Paul literally says, you used to be a slave to sin, now be a slave to Christ. Sounds like those two don't jive really well. 
Or how about the pursuit of happiness? I have great news. Happiness is not the key to life. If you're here and you're not happy, you're not missing out on all that much. <laughs> Truly. But how happiness means I have the right to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else. Happiness means that I get to subjectively make preference, preferential choices based on whether or not I'm happy or unhappy. I'm in a marriage that I don't like. I'm unhappy. That's reason enough to get out. I'm in a job I hate, but, but leaving it would put my family in jeopardy. I'm unhappy. That's reason enough. Happiness is the superseding value. I prefer, I choose, and I consume based on that. And Jesus comes along and he says, give up your rights and your preferences. Substitute my agenda for your agenda and you'll find life. Does that sound like a one-time deal to you? Hmm? Not at all. And that's why you can't divorce this whole set of teaching from who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that welcomes anybody. Jesus is the one that heals and the one that forgives and the one that saves. He's the compelling one. But you and I have to be reminded he's worth it. Because I'm bombarded with billions of dollars of marketing that tells me life is found somewhere else. Life is found in the fulfillment of my desires, in the fulfillment of my wants and preferences. And this Jesus comes in and says, no, no, no. Let me reshape your wants and your preferences. And you'll be amazed with what I can do. So I've got a, I'm a fan of college students. I graduated a couple of years ago. And, um, and I just love them. I just have always loved college ministry, college kids, because they're just epically honest. And I was talking to a kid about some of this stuff, and he says, it's more fun not to follow Jesus than to follow Jesus. Now, have you ever thought that? Okay, there are a lot of laughing, no hands. I've thought that. How do you answer somebody like that? How do you answer somebody who just quite honestly says, well, I'm just not sure. I mean, I, I want to have fun now and I'll get serious about it later. Do you beg them? Jesus never begged, did he? Do you see anywhere? Do you bribe them with promises of health and happiness and eternal rose-petaled paths through life? Jesus never bribed anybody. So how would Jesus handle somebody that came up and said, well, it's just more fun not to follow you? I think Jesus would have talked about the cost of discipleship which is what we've been talking about. But I also think it would have talked about the cost of non-discipleship. Meaning there's a cost of following Jesus, and then there's also a cost to not following Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? That's, what, that's how I ended up talking, about, talking to this kid. I'm like, you know, in the church, sometimes we preach Jesus is all benefit and no cost. Right? So he's my cosmic self-help guru. He's meant to actualize my potential. Not so much. My potential is called sin, and he's, he's here to deal with it. Other people teach that following Jesus 
is all cost and no benefit. As long as you're miserable, you're spiritual. And he didn't teach that either. He taught that there are costs either direction. So think about it. Is forgiveness hard? Yeah, those of you that never have had to do it are thinking yes or no. Those of us that have had something horrible that we've had to forgive someone of know how brutal forgiveness is. There is a cost to forgiveness. Is there a cost to unforgiveness? Yes, and it's worse. How about humility? I hate that word. We live in a culture that you, you have to promote yourself, right? A resume is just a, it's a list of boastings, right? I, I got to do a review and I got to list all my accomplishments, right? I mean, I live in a world where it's totally okay to kind of shade the truth to make yourself look good. How hard is it to let other people get credit for some of your work? How hard is it to see other people lifted up and you not named among them? How hard is it to be satisfied that Jesus is increasing while you're decreasing? Is humility hard? There's a cost. But what's the cost of pride? How about purity? Purity hard? Single folks? Married folks? Human folks? Purity hard? But what's the cost of immorality? How about generosity? Every time I put money in an envelope and give it away to the church, to an organization, to whatever, I not only think about the money, but I think about what I could have had with that money. So it's like two slices, right? It's not just the resources, but it's what the resources could have meant in terms of vacations or a new truck, hypothetically. But is there a cost to greed? We know it. Many of us don't go to those extremes. We just try to have a little bit of both, right? A little bit of Jesus sprinkled in as we go. So what do you tell a kid like this? I just told him, well, there's a cost to following Christ. And the cost is you've got to follow Christ. Like, like, that, Jesus, that specific Jesus, the way he says to follow him, yes, that's the way to follow him. That's, that's the cost. But the far bigger cost is not following him. Because he shows us the way we were meant to live. He reconciles us to the Father and deals with our deeper needs. But he doesn't promise there won't be pain or suffering or disappointment along the way. He just promises he'll be with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. So instead of happiness, he promises us joy. And joy is totally, you can't string together a bunch of little happinesses and get joy. Because joy is totally independent of circumstances. Joy is a foreign commodity in American culture. Because you can be sick and have joy. You can be dying and have joy. You can be in a loveless marriage and have joy. You can be working at a job you hate and have joy. Does this leave anyone else uncomfortable? So I said to the kid, 
I said, Jesus wouldn't beg you and he wouldn't bribe you. He'd let you go. As long as you believe there's treasure somewhere else, go for it. Just understand though, when you give yourself over to something else, it forms you and shapes you into the kind of person who would never want to come back. Don't buy the lie that you can, as you are now, make the determination that 10 years of just absolute rebellion, that somehow you can flick that switch 10 years from now because you are actually formed and shaped by what you give yourself to. So men and women, question for us. And this, and one last part, doggone it. I am a sinner. You know what my wife and I did yesterday? We argued about money. It was awesome. It was great sermon prep, man. I'm telling you what. Because I'm going, where'd all this go? And she's going, well, here's where it went. I mean, and it's like, she's like, will you spend it on big stuff? And I'm like, will you spend it on tiny, dumb stuff? And she's like, no, your stuff's dumb. And I'm like, your stuff is dumb. You know? I mean, you spend it on country music. I mean, that's awful. That is awful. That is sinful. You know, it's, it, I mean, we're casting out Shania Twain demons. Taylor Swift demons from my house. It was tough. So we're having this argument. And I know none of you can relate to this, married folks. And, and it dawns on me, right, as I'm prepping for this whole message. It dawns on me. I play the, I give 10% away to the church off the top. Don't even think about it. It's just done. And then we do other things. But I buy the lie that I get, say, over the 90%. That... I, I tip him 10% because he's good, right? I don't want him punishing me for anything, so I tip him 10%, and then I get the 90. And that's what we were arguing about, was my thoughts of the 90 versus my wife's thoughts about the 90. And Jesus, in a very gentle way, says, why don't you ask my thoughts on the 90? And I said, I don't want to. <laughs> I said that. I don't want to. Because I'm afraid of what you'll do with the 90. I like the 90. You've already got 10, and 10's so much. Besides, you don't need the money. Leave me alone. Highly spiritual. This was all while I was fasting, praying. (laughs) So he's working on me. He's going, okay, so there's this whole area of life where you don't let me have say. What would it be for you? The way I figure it, there are a couple of different kinds of folks of us here. Some of us aren't real sure about the whole Jesus thing. Fantastic. I'm so glad that you would be here. I really am. And I would love for you to get to know this Jesus and understand what he wants to do isn't just like turn you into a religious person. He He wants to turn you into a mini Jesus so that you be salt and light in the world. And maybe you're here, and you just need to be convinced that Jesus is the treasure. Because that's where sometimes I'm at. It's like, I need to be reminded that he's the best thing I got going. And if you're not immersing yourselves in the Gospels and just marveling at what an amazing guy he is, and if you're not surrounded with fellow students who just get together and remind you of how great he is, and if you're not learning to have a dialogue with him as you go through your real life, if you're not learning to thank him, I mean, it's tough because you live in a world that just says no. 
You're the one who's worth everything. But then there are those of us, and we're in, but there are these areas where it's just kind of like <laughs> the 90%. You know, it's like mine. And it's, and it's like... I. I don't want to fully follow Jesus because he'll send me to China. I don't want to fully follow Jesus because he'll make me poor. I don't want to fully follow Jesus because he'll keep me single. I mean, we have the list. And this morning, the invitation is to repent of whatever that if is. There's no I'll follow Jesus if, I'll follow Jesus when, I'll follow Jesus just. The invitation is just to follow Jesus and to believe he's that good that he'll actually take care of you. So would you do this? Would you stand up with me? You guys look like you've been sitting long enough. There's some eyes that are glazing over. Would you shut your eyes for a moment? Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you somebody that just needs to be convinced that he's the treasure? That he really is as good and as magnificent and as awesome as he seems. Are you somebody that's convinced, but in the ongoing journey of becoming more like him, there are just these pockets of life where he doesn't have say? Maybe this morning he would just come along and, and say, Would you abandon? the illusion of security and life you find in that thing for me. And so would you just take a moment and have that conversation with him? Just right here. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.